0: The following podcast contains general advice only and does not take into account your individual circumstances. Listeners should speak to an accountant or financial advisor before making any investment decision. Hello again, everyone, and thank you very much for tuning into this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. This is episode 20, the Floodgate Edition been a while since i've reminded you of this but if you do have any questions for the show please email me at marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com got plenty to talk about this week i'm actually going to jump into one of the subjects that i sort of touched on at the end of last episode which is dollar cost averaging and i said uh, maybe i should save that as a topic for a future episode well here is that future episode we're going to talk about that at the towards the end of the podcast as our topic for the week but we've got a few sort of broader economic things to discuss before we get there but let's kick it off with how the markets have been doing this week. So not a good week for the ASX, it did end the week down 2.3% so that means that we pretty much lost the gain last week which was 2.6% so we kind of almost lost that, that gain there. In the US it was a little bit of a different story, the US actually, which sounds weird because like considering what they're going through at the moment but The US was up, well, the S&P 500 was up 1.7%. The NASDAQ, even better, they were up 4%. So the market's had a much better time over there in the US. And yeah, it's just been, I guess, another week of continued COVID concerns. I'm talking sort of domestically here, especially for obviously residents of Victoria or metropolitan Melbourne where the border shutdown has, no, sorry, the actual Shutdown has come into place for a six-week period. Victoria actually had the biggest jump in new cases. I believe this jump was actually the biggest daily jump of any state since code first broke on the scene. That was yesterday, I think, from when I'm recording this. So whilst there have been some positive signs, I suppose, across other states, and you can see some loosening restrictions, it really isn't all rosy. And for example, here in Queensland, we've actually started to open the border up. You might have seen those images of... Just the huge congestion of people coming across from New South Wales into Queensland But of course the only state that nowhere is opening up to right now is Victoria And all this has very much weighed on markets this week And you know put a bit of a question mark against how quickly Or at least how easy a recovery will be here in Australia And sort of just a reminder that you know things like Victoria could happen in the other states here as well I think there was a little bit of perhaps that we thought that, you know, we were all in the clear for a second there and then it's really hit back at us and, you know, there's even signs of maybe some community transmission in Sydney now too which I noticed just as I was writing some notes for the show. So, not a lot of good news and the market performance very much reflected that this week. You know, the market's been hopeful that we're going to rise out of this with, you know, what they call like the V-shape recovery. So, whilst we had that huge decline, but we're going to have a sharp uptick on the other end and maybe just have a couple scratches but there's, you know, there's a worry now that we might have to face further shutdowns. Obviously, in Melbourne, that's a reality already. But you know, I'm sure each state premier across the country is, is kind of thinking and looking around that we don't obviously want that to happen anywhere else. And then there's also the sort of broader worry among markets of how stimulus will continue to play out beyond September, how unemployment looks closer to sort of more Christmas time and going into next year, and just how much stress certain industries such as Say say the banks who have like sort of large you know retail mortgage books you know how much stress they're going to be under if things like Job Seeker and or Job Keeper get the rug pulled out from underneath them too quickly, you know in April there was a Senate inquiry which there uh, was released and it looked at the adequacy of New Start and related income support mechanisms that we have in Australia because remember Job Seeker is kind of just like a rebranded name for the Dole obviously it's a lot higher than what the standard sort of Dole was uh, before all this. However, looking at the recommendations from the Senate report, one of the ones, or the final recommendation was actually, after all this is finished, a permanent increase to things such as Youth Allowance and JobKeeper, not to what they are now, that wasn't the suggestion of the Senate report, but higher than they were pre-COVID-19 effectively. Let's keep to some grim themes this week, and even the OECD had some bad news for the world the OECD, of course, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, they warned that the COVID destruction f- on you know, employment across the world has already been 10 times worse than, say, the same period during the GFC. And what they're specifically referring to here is not like the unemployment rate or anything like this, but they're specifically talking about the loss of hours worked. And I've kind of touched on that a little bit of had that concern here on the podcast. And we've talked about those sort of loss of hours worked in Australia. But let's say you're a lucky person in that, say, you're not someone that's lost their job, but you've been unlucky in that maybe you used to work five days a week, but now you're working four or three, you know, that is income that you're never getting back, you know. Whether you were going to actually save that money in an account and put it maybe towards a house deposit, or even if you were just gonna go to the pub and buy a round of beers, right? That is money that is no longer there that's circulating. The OECD report specifically sort of shows that. The loss of hours worked among developed nations is much greater than the loss of hours worked that occurred during 2008 and said that it's 10 times worse across certain nations. Now if we look over at the US, at the moment the job news is still quite depressing. On Thursday the Labor Department reported 2.4 million new applicants for unemployment benefits at both state and federal level I also told you guys a couple of weeks ago about that other data point which is continued claims for employment as that 2.4 million that I just referenced is just people filing for the first time. The continued claims data at last updated was just over 18 million people and for comparison at the very worst of the GFC period, the continued claim data was closer to about 6.5 million. So about one third of where the US is currently right now compared to uh, the worst of the GFC period. So yes, whilst new jobless claims have fallen from the peaks that we saw in March and April, they're still very high. And like say 2.5 million or 2.4 million new applicants for unemployment benefits, that's massive, right? But it feels, you kind of get numb to those numbers because we were seeing like closer to like 6 or 8 million in a single week going back a couple months ago. But it's important to sort of also have a look at how that's happening. And when you have a look at the graph of each week, Whilst the amount of new applicants have been falling since uh, COVID sort of hit that peak, going back a couple months ago, the actual curve of that graph has started to flatten a little bit now, like it's not starting to go down. It's been around that two to two and a half million new claims each week for the last few weeks in a row now. And it doesn't really look like it's getting better anytime soon in the US, of course, surging coronaviruses across the country, mostly in some of those more badly hit states such as Arizona and Texas and Florida. What's kind of scary there is if you look at the national daily new deaths for COVID-19 in the US. It has been on the downtrend since late April, but in the last couple days, so the last three days, you can see that the death spikes are closer to the, number, the numbers that were being reported say back in uh, late May, early June. So around 900 daily deaths and this has caused the three-day and seven-day moving average of daily new deaths to actually tick up slightly now so that curve is coming down, coming down and it's actually ticked up at the end there so I would be very worried if I was in charge right now which is the issue because no one is in charge, there's basically zero leadership at the very top. It's more that like the states in the US seem to be all sort of separately running their own control measures and their own little experiments to try and work it out but there's not much of a sign that they're working as one unit whereas at least in Australia you've you've kind of seen that whilst yes different premiers have directed their state policies it has looked much more like a cohesive effort across the nation and I think that has made a, a bigger difference of course but yes the job numbers in the US don't look like they're going to get any better anytime soon you even had airlines this week such as United Airlines say that they might even have to lay off further workers. They cited about 36,000 further workers that they might have to lay off and they're blaming that collapse in air demand because whilst planes have retaken back to the sky in the US, that doesn't mean people are going to fly, of course, because you see those new surges in cases across the country and I'm sure that's not very motivating for for holiday makers to think about an interstate holiday right now. Uh, So airlines, whilst, yes, they have... Picked up a little bit. They are nowhere near the kind of capacity and uh, business that they used to be doing pre-COVID. But let's quickly jump to Australia, and we and we do this quickly before we discuss the top of topic for the week. But I did note that data came from the tax office this week that showed that almost 2.4 million Australians have applied for early withdrawal from their super. As part of the, it was part of one of the COVID measures that allowed people suffering financial hardship from the virus to actually take ten thousand dollars during the, that was during the financial year that just ended, and then you can also apply for another ten thousand dollars in the financial year that just started the other week. You know, data shows around eighteen billion dollars had been paid to Aussies from super funds, and this is from when the scheme started up until June twenty eighth. Interestingly though, as and as sort of was pointed out by a couple articles that reported on this data, the total amount of applications approved by the ATO has been 25 billion, and that's actually 7 billion more than that 18 billion figure that I said has actually been paid out up until June 28. So it kind of means that there's potentially been a flurry of new applications right before the financial year ended, or perhaps there's actually been a flurry of new applications as soon as the new financial year started. So because then that actually ticks over, and you can actually apply for another ten grand. It's been mostly the not-for-profit industry funds that have shelled out the most money. Australian Super has uh, sent out about two point four billion dollars back to members who have applied for this. The likes of your Sun Super's, Rest Host Plus, Cbus, they're closer to about one billion dollar each. So interesting there. I-, I think I'm interested to see how many people. In this financial year continue to take it up and, and sort of how that compares to the, the previous financial year up until June 30. See if that's sort of slowed down. It'd be interesting to see also data on P, like the same individuals coming back. So someone who's done the $10,000 in the last financial year and is doing it again. But we'll keep an eye on that as we go forward. But let's jump into the topic this week, which is dollar cost averaging. I mentioned at the top of the show. And as I said, I mentioned this you know, in the last episode, I said it was like an investment strategy and maybe I could break that down into a little bit more detail. So let's deep dive into this one a little bit if you're unsure exactly what it means or maybe you've heard of it before. It's, it's, it is very easy to break down so hopefully you can follow along. So when it comes to investing, you know, dollar cost averaging is just a strategy that gets you, the investor, to make regular recurring investments into the market throughout the year or years, doesn't really matter. And what I mean by this is instead of saving say a lump sum or or having access to a lump sum just ready to deploy into the market and sort of then trying to work out exactly where and what day to invest that lump sum, the point of dollar cost averaging is to continue to invest no matter the market movements, up or down, you know, over the time your investment should average out as you're just doing it on that recurring basis. So yeah, while you might put your money in at the very top one day, right before it has a bit of a pullback. If you've maintained sort of discipline with your dollar cost averaging, it means you've been putting it in regularly all the way to that point. So you've gotten some at, you know, some cheaper prices, some around the middle prices, some at the very top prices. And so no matter where the market was, you maintained a plan, say whether it was monthly or or fortnightly of actually putting money into the market. So your next question sort of might be, well, how much though? And that's that's very personal, I think, and that comes down to you know you working out how much you want to invest based on your sort of personal financial circumstances and savings. You know, you might be saving for something else to buy. You know, whether it's a uh, I don't know a new car or or even something bigger like a house. So you might not be wanting to put away all your savings in the market, and that's perfectly fine. It just means that you want to work out how much you can put away for investing purposes. And you might say that say two hundred dollars a fortnight or one hundred dollars a fortnight. Yeah, maybe you can do more than that. Maybe you only can do less than that. It doesn't really matter, but it's about sticking to this certain principle. And so taking that example of say, let's just say you did pick $200 a fortnight. If you were doing a dollar cost averaging over, say the next five years, you'd be doing that. And yes, while sometimes you might be putting it in when the market's say at the top, because and you'd be able to look back in history and see that you are putting it in at the top. You'll also be putting it in at, say when the market has pullbacks or, You know, all those different times, right? So it's not about trying to time the market or trying to time the best time to actually put your dollars in. It means you're just always doing it. And over time, that sort of averages out uh, that investment that you're putting into the market. So I guess I see dollar cost averaging as having several benefits to investors, especially new investors. So the first reason, which I think is a little bit, maybe overlooked sometimes with this, but it creates a habit. So not really anything to do with investing, but it creates a, a very powerful habit. And it might not be sort of easy or fun at first, but creating the habit is very important and it's it's very crucial to sort of getting this kind of thing right. And it's it's kind of like going to the gym for the first time or going for a run, right? For the very first time, right? I'll say if it's been a long time since you've done any exercise, it sucks, right? Like, it, you know, you go for that first run, you might even just get 1K in or something, right? But, you know, if you stick to it, like you keep going to back to the gym, you keep going for your run, over time it gets a little bit easier and you start to notice that you know you can actually go a little bit further and further and and you know that that initial run that was so hard that you, you sort of almost forget just how hard that was so it's about creating that habit once you get into that routine the second reason is it also this kind of strategy removes emotion right which is some of those uh, pesky human attributes that tend to make us either invest or not invest or maybe get too scared or On the opposite side, maybe get too greedy. Whatever it is, it sort of removes that emotion, and that's because you're always you're taking this always-on investing approach. The third reason is, and it kind of relates to the second one, I guess, but it lets you sort of be free of trying to pick the bottom. Now, when I say when I refer to like the bottom, right, it's kind of like looking back in history and seeing, say, when when there was before this COVID stuff, like the last big sort of market pullback and 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 sort of correction was during the GFC, right? That's the most famous one. And whilst you can look back in history and you can see the point when, say, the ASX hit its rock bottom at the time and then from then on it started to move up, you know, no one at that time, no one on that specific day would have been like, all right, this is the bottom, it's, it's very easy to see, right? Now, I actually saw an article that criticized this dollar cost averaging approach and its, its prime, primary argument was that it compared the dollar cost averaging approach from the GFC versus someone who put put the same amount but as a lump sum in at the GFC at the very bottom of the market. And the issue with that is how the hell do you know when the bottom is? It's very easy to play the armchair quarterback and say, oh, you should have thrown some money into the market at this time. But history is also very easy in hindsight. And this is the point behind my third reason. It removes the need to try and time the market because Two things can kind of go wrong there, right? You either try and time the market and let's say you're completely wrong, right? Like it just, it goes down the next day. The other thing that can happen is you try and time the market and do nothing, right? You sit there for a year thinking that say some big pullback's going to happen and then a year's gone. And then you wait into the next year and you're like, oh, it's going to happen now. And then then two years have gone past, right? So no one ever really knows if someone's telling you that they know, yes, they could be right, but that's just circumstantial, I think. And I think it's important to flag that I don't recommend being super detached from what the market's doing at all. Like I'm not saying just ignore what the market's doing. I still think you need to be aware of what you're investing in and if sort of any material changes have occurred. I just don't think you and, and don't zone out completely. I'm just saying the good thing about this strategy is that it sort of removes you trying to think too much about when the bottom's going to be and and letting your emotions actually drive your investing. And this kind of brings me to my next point, which is what to actually invest in. And I think you can kind of take a couple approaches here. You can look at investing in ETFs or exchange traded funds. This would definitely be the safest option and very ideal for those who are just getting started. You could also invest in some ETFs and maybe also pick some individual companies that interest you. So for example, you might have decided that you're going to save, you've decided to save $1,000 a month. And the first month ends and you decide to put that thousand dollars in West Farmers. And then the next time the month ends, you've saved another thousand dollars and then you decide to put that in Macquarie Bank. And then the next month ends and you decide to put that in Zip pay, et etc, et etc. It just goes from there. And they're just examples. they are not recommendations by any means, but the idea is that it helps you also build a diversified portfolio and you start to pick stocks and you start to pick stocks in different sectors across the market, which spreads out your risk. And allows you to not sort of, you know, put all your eggs in one basket. But I think if I did want to actually give a recommendation for what you should do, I would say also think about investing not just in Australia. So I think if I was, say, picking some Australian companies or an Australian ETFs, I'd also look at putting some of it into, say, an S&P 500 ETF or some kind of US market index fund, maybe a NASDAQ one or just the total US market one. It doesn't matter. There's a fair few out there. And I think that would be a quite a suitable addition to the portfolio. And you can sort of increase on that over time with a strategy like this. But I'd be amiss if I didn't mention some of the downsides. And I've sort of already mentioned one already. And that's saying don't be too complacent. You know, don't just zombie invest or not pay attention to what you're invested in. You know, if you've got an ETF like an S&P 500 in the the US, like one of those ETF index funds, or you've just got an ASX 200 index fund, then yeah, you probably can just coast because the point of those is they're just going to rebalance themselves, over time, and then just invest in the top companies that make up that index. So you don't have to worry about that too much. But if you did pick individual shares, so individual companies, still look at picking solid companies, still look at companies that have solid growth prospects over the long term. Don't just stop paying attention to what they do, though, as a business. The second sort of downside is just be wary of fees. And what I mean by that is maybe your stockbroker, like your online trading platform, charges $10. whatever it is to make a trade so keep that in mind so for example if you decide you look at your personal financial circumstances you decide that oh i can only save $500 a month to put towards the market that's cool and then you go look at your you know your nominated trading platform whatever it is and you work out it's going to cost $10 a trade so instead of say making one trade a month and paying. Well, if you're paying $10, that's about two. That's a 2% fee right there, right? Instead of doing that, maybe you save your $500 and invest it every two months or three months. So in $1,000 or $1,500 intervals, and that sort of cuts the fees down that you're paying that year. So instead of $10 every month, maybe you're paying $10 every few months, right? And so you're just letting it bank up a little bit before you put that into the market. So you still stick to the plan of saving that money aside, but maybe just keep in, keep in mind those fees that you're paying and work out what's best for you there. The third downside, it's not really a downside, but just don't put all your savings in the market, I think. And this is kind of a separate point. that's not really relevant to um, dollar cost averaging per se, but always have some cash on hand and not just cash for investing. But I just mean like a little buffer that the, the, you know, the shit hits the fan buffer. You know, If you lose your job because of a pandemic that's, that's happening around the world, always try and focus on that. And if anything, work on creating that buffer first and then putting in a strategy like this. But I'm gonna leave you on a really cool example of this in practice. And it was like a study that was done. And it's it's a good example of uh, long-term investing where you sort of ignore the whole point of trying to time the market. And this is from a Tony Robbins book. It's called Unshakable, but it's not his study. It's actually a reference to a, a Charles Schwab, uh, JP Morgan study. And it examined investing across a 20-year period, but with four different investing strategies. Now, this, stu- this study has for investors you've got investor a investor b c and d and all of these people invest two thousand dollars per year over a 20 year period now the difference between a b c and d is how they invested okay investor a they put their two thousand dollars in the market each year at the very bottom of the market for that year so they had impeccable timing they knew when the bottom was every single year. So whenever that was each year, they put the whole $2000 in. So absolute perfect timing picks the low point every year. And then investor B on New Year's Day of each year, they put their 2000 in on New Year's Day. So they didn't look to time it, right? They just put it on the first day of each year. And then when the year wraps around again, they put another two thousand in. So no matter where the market was, no matter what the media was saying about, oh we're in a bull market or oh it's overpriced or we're in a bear market, they didn't care about that. They just put it in on the first day of each year. So that's investor B. Investor C is actually the opposite of A. So where A times everything perfectly, investor C times everything horribly and puts their two thousand dollars into the market in the absolute high point of that of that year so they they picked it right before it started to go down and they say so they put their $2000 at the very high point of each year and finally investor D they kind of didn't do any of that they actually avoided the market at all cost they still put their $2000 invested each year but they put it into say some very safe government bonds and cash now over this 20 year period following these four strategies by A B C and D you get some results of how they end up after the 20-year period. Now investor A that timed it perfectly each year, he or she, they actually did come out on top. So their $2,000 a year over that 20-year time period turned into $177,000 over that time. But investor B who just put it in at the start of the year, they didn't look to try and time it perfectly. They actually ended up with $165,000. So they actually weren't that far behind. And the interesting thing is, investor C, who actually timed it the worst each year, they had 144,000. So again, they were they didn't do as well as someone who just put it in at the start of the year and didn't care. And they definitely did not work, do as well as someone who perfectly timed it. But they—they, they, you know, they did better than you think over that time period. And the person who decided, Investor D, they decided to stay in cash, they ended up with $65,000 at that time. So they did not reap any of the benefits of, of how the market performs, especially against a, an asset class like cash and bonds. So the point here is that, yes, whilst the person who timed it perfectly each year technically did win, that's very that's impossible to do, right? This is this is a purely hypothetical study and no one could have done that each year you know, for 20 years. But the point is it's showing that the person investor B, who actually just invested uh, without caring about where the market was, wasn't whether it was at the top or the bottom. You know who who cares? They just put it in every year of that time. They actually were pretty close to actually almost matching the actual person that actually perfectly timed it. And I think that's a pretty important, pretty important example there of just why you why you know in this case why you shouldn't just you know just ignore whatever the whatever people are saying. Whether and you know the media will come out with things like. You know whether this is a huge loss today or whether this is a good time to invest. They just invested and and just stuck to that plan of investing two thousand dollars each year. Hopefully, that little example at the end uh, made a bit of sense. It's always a bit harder to sort of explain something that's probably a bit better explained visually. But if you wanted to look it up, you can type in like you know Tony Robbins, Charles Schwab study or something. There's a bunch of articles on it, but that shows those, those investor A, B, C, and D and how they performed over that twenty year period. It's really interesting and it kind of speaks to why you should just A, also stay invested in the market and not care about, you know, whether it's going to be a good year or a bad year and B, just keep adding to those investments. So over time, add more to the market and and continue to stay in the market. Awesome. That was, was, uh, I hope that was interesting and thank you uh, for listening. Hopefully, the whole dollar cost averaging thing made a little bit more sense. If you have further questions on it or maybe there's a part of it you didn't understand, just shoot me an email. We can cover that on a future show. Thank you for tuning in to episode 20. It's kind of flown by 20 episodes, but we've, we've got there already. Have a great rest of your weekend and thanks for tuning into the podcast. My name is Dion Grubin. Cheers.